Hello to our listeners. Welcome to the Women Governance Trailblazers podcast, where we listen to the journeys of trailblazing women in the corporate governance field, their passion, struggles, and commitment to improving how companies and boards function. My name is Courtney Camlet, and my co-host is Liz Dunchy. Hi, everyone. Liz and I are both super passionate about governance, and we want to spotlight some of the amazing women who share that passion. We're connecting with guests from different paths and industries to hear their perspectives on what surprised them in their career and where they think the field of corporate governance is going. For this episode, we're very excited to be talking with Beverly Bayon. Beverly has worked with boards of directors of the S&P 1500 and listed companies around the globe for the past 25 years. She started her own firm, Board Advisor LLC, in 2009 and was a former partner at Mercer Delta in New York and global managing director of the Hayes Group. Hay Group's Board Effectiveness Practice. Welcome, Bev. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's a real honor to be with you. We're so glad to have you here. Yes, we definitely are. Thank you for joining us today, Bev. You got interested in boards because you saw a board of a major Canadian airline play a role in destroying morale at that company and make a terrible decision on CEO succession. So then it sounds like after a brief stint back at a law firm in Vancouver, you joined Mercer in executive compensation and ultimately moved into board effectiveness full-time with Mercer Delta in New York. Then you started your own firm, Board Advisor LLC, in 2009, focusing on board and director evaluations and other board effectiveness issues. And you've also found time to write four books on governance issues, including two that were recently released. One is called Director Evaluations, Innovations for 21st Century Governance Committees. And the other one, which I am having the pleasure of reading, is called Becoming a Boardroom Star. And I understand that that one is available as both an audio book and in print format on Amazon. Um, so you've had quite the career so far, and I'm intrigued by this story about the Canadian airline, and I'm hoping that you could just tell us a little bit more about your path to working with boards. Uh, I think you've worked with nearly 200 boards in the U.S. and around the world, and then also how that led to becoming an author. Well, thanks. Um, you know, I often say that I have the greatest job in the world because I get to work with really uh, smart uh, accomplished, successful, sophisticated people on very important issues that have a significant impact on the companies that they govern, uh, the people that work at those companies, uh, the people who invest in those companies, and other stakeholders whose lives are affected. And my own interest in boards stemmed from uh, seeing what happened and how uh, some inappropriate board decisions um, impacted the lives of some people, including a lot of my friends. Mm. Uh, I'm really dating myself because I'll go back to actually the first Gulf War. And I was sort of an impressionable young attorney uh, working for uh, this large airline in Canada, which no longer exists. Good okay? to know. Good and, to know. Thank you. <laughs> that, that says it all right there. And um, during that time, you know, no one was flying and fuel prices were through the roof. And pretty much every airline worldwide was suffering. And in the United States, you could sort of go into Chapter 11 and operate there, and that's what most of our American counterparts did. But Canadian law didn't afford that. Once you filed for what was called CCAA, which was bankruptcy in Canada, it was game over, and hmm. your creditors started seizing your jets. So someone in the organization, a very senior executive, came up with the idea 
of trying to negotiate with our unions um, a wages for stock deal. And on, on top of that was a joint venture with one of the U.S. carriers. And I became very involved with some of those union negotiations and other things like that. And I'll tell you, at the time, morale at this company was just electric because people were thrilled to be saving the company. And they were contributing anywhere, depended on the union group, from I think about 8% to about 18% for the pilots of their wages that were being put into corporate stock hmm. in order to save the company. And uh, on top of that, management, led by the CEO at that time, said that they would uh, give 20% of their pay, and everybody felt like we were all kind of in this together, and we were saving this company, and it was a really exciting place to be and to work, until all of a sudden, about uh, four months after this um, announcement by the CEO that he was going to take a 20% cut, so was all of management, the proxy came out, and guess what? We'd made all of our employees shareholders. So they were super interested, mm -hmm. <laughs> and they all read the proxy, and guess what they saw? This was in around, I think it was around 93, and it was one of the first years that you had to list your top five executives and what they made for the past three years. And, of course, they immediately looked at the CEO's pay, and it was a little bit lower, but it sure didn't look like 20%. No, let me get out my calculator. It was about 4%, I think, or 3%. Oh, no. And, oh, Yeah. And so our unions in particular were livid. You know, as I recall, we had some wildcat strikes at some of the major Canadian airports. I mean, it was a really, it was a real mess, and people were very upset. So the CEO said, oh, well, uh, the board gave me a raise, you see, and then they levied the full 20%. So you can imagine how that went over. <laughs> and then the board decided they were going to run interference. So what they did is they sent letters uh, to the home. Uh, signed, you know, in photocopy, obviously, by all the members of the board uh, to every one of our employees who are now shareholders. And the letter basically said, uh, stop criticizing the CEO. Be glad you have a job. Wow. Wow. And, of course, these people had all just become shareholders, and this, these letters were coming to them from the board of directors. So the morale of the company absolutely tanked. And the... CEO became an absolute lightning rod for the unions, for the employees. I mean, it was just a very bad scene. So the board realized, gee, we better get rid of this CEO. And, you know, this was an airline. So they hired a new CEO who was from a uh, commercial real estate company. Now, you might wonder why they chose him, and the only rationale we could see is that that commercial real estate company had its headquarters in the same Calgary office tower as the airline. Hmm. So the board members perhaps met him in the elevator or the lobby. <laughs> wow. Needless to say, he was not successful as the CEO of this company, and uh, within about two years, uh, the company was basically sold at a fire sale price to our rival, Air Canada, and I think 30,000 or 40,000 people lost their jobs, many of whom were my friends. Wow. And that got me really interested in boards because I saw firsthand how bad board decisions impacted people's lives. So that was what got me interested in boards. Okay. Yikes. <laughs> wow. 
Now, from there, I went back into private practice um, at a Vancouver law firm and did that for a couple of years. And right around that time, a report had come out uh, in Canada. Um, this is in the early kind of mid-90s. And there had been a lot of governance scandal in Britain in about 92 or something like that. And the Cadbury report had come out from Sir Adrian Cadbury. And then a lot of Commonwealth countries like Canada and Australia they did sort of parallel reports, um, and this one had come out from the Toronto Stock Exchange. And I'll tell you, Liz and Courtney, I read this on the beach in Vancouver like it was a dirty novel, you know, because <laughs> oh, no. this report is, you know, talking about all this stuff that I've witnessed, and not only at the airline, I was also seeing some pretty lackluster boards as a corporate finance attorney, mm -hmm. um, closing deals, taking companies public, what have you, and um, this was just reinforcing everything I saw, and I started to see, well, you know what, this isn't just one or two companies, I mean, this is a really prevalent problem, and my friends on the beach said, you know, what are you reading? And I said, I'm reading this corporate governance thing. And they said, oh, Bev, you need to get a life. And I said, you know what? I think I found a life because I believe that boards should be more than a country club and that boards should be where the, where the buck stops and that smart people, experienced people on boards should make a difference and add value for companies and for the people that depend on them. And that's what I want to do. I want to work with boards and make them all that they can be. Hmm. That's so, a really strong purpose. <laughs> that was, that was, that's what it began on a Vancouver beach about uh, 27 years ago. So I then had to determine, you know, how to do that. Um, I didn't find that working at a law firm was probably going to moved me enough in that direction. So I joined William Mercer in their executive comp group, not that I had any interest in executive comp, uh, but because it was a way of getting in and out of the boardroom, working with boards more regularly. And I did want to understand how comp decisions were made and, and the factors in those. And amazingly, within um, probably less than a year, because I told them at the time I joined, I was interested in broader board issues, although hardly anyone was working with boards on board effectiveness in that, at that time, uh, one of the large Canadian banks had a uh, shareholder activist issue, and I got brought in to work on that. And um, then I was basically hired by the uh, chair of the governance committee uh, to do not only a board evaluation, but an individual director evaluation for that bank. And it was the first large uh, North American company, because this was in 1996, um, to ever undertake um, a director peer evaluation. Wow. So I then got transferred to New York, um, and this was in about 2000. I became a partner with a consulting firm here called Mercer Delta. It was part of Marsha McLennan sister organization. And then Enron fell. And all of a sudden, you know, there weren't that many people that really specialized in board effectiveness. And suddenly I was doing interviews, things like that. And we were, as a firm, became interested in board effectiveness. And then, you know, when that firm sort of, you know, teetered and, and if, if finally, uh, you know, our former chair passed away, um, I went to the Hay Group. And that was an interesting experience because I got to work a lot more globally. I started doing work in Israel uh, Latin America, um, in Asia, and other places. And then, um, you know, 
uh, I just felt it was time finally to start my own practice, and that's when I wrote, read, uh, sorry, wrote my last book, which was Great Companies Deserve Great Boards, and uh, that's what I've been doing over the past decade. Wow, that's uh, quite, quite the career journey, and also to think about all of the advancements that have been made over the course of your career in corporate governance. I mean, obviously, there's still room for improvement, um, but coming from that country club culture and how things have evolved to where we are today is um, a, lot to, a lot to think about. A lot has happened in that time. I've had a front row seat to it, and I've also been able to hopefully contribute to some of it, and it's been, it's been a great journey. So you've been working in various capacities in the boardroom for over 20 years. What are some of the most significant changes you've seen in that time? Well, obviously, as as you just alluded to, the most significant change has been, you know, Enron became a real pivot point. And that sort of country club mentality, I think in the 20th century, most directors viewed board service as a reward. You know, it was an honor. They weren't really supposed to, you know, get involved. I mean, we made jokes that, you know, a, a board in those days was like a Christmas tree ornament. You know, they looked very impressive, but they really, you know, didn't do much. And so um, we've certainly seen a shift in, in Enron being what caused that shift to happen and all the changes and regs that happened after that. So the only time I typically see a board operating in what I call country club mode is sometimes in founder organizations and sometimes in nonprofits. And I don't do a lot of work in the nonprofit space, but I certainly have seen a little bit of that because people sometimes tend to view uh, nonprofit board service as a bit of a reward or, um, you know, an honor to serve on, say, the board of the Metropolitan Museum of Art or whatever mm-hmm. it is. But in the S&P 1500, you've definitely seen a shift um, to, you know, far away from that country club mentality to directors becoming far harder working, more engaged, um, dealing with very complex risks and um, issues and trying to really add value and make a difference for the most part. So I think that's a shift. I think there's more shifts to come. I mean, we're entering the third decade of the 21st century, and I've seen boards um, – will it go from that country club to what I call almost a reporting out type of um, dynamic where, you know, management will make a presentation and then the board will ask questions and test management's assumptions, challenge various things, look at um, different dimensions of the issue. And that's perfectly fine. That's a board looking at its, or, you know, exercising its uh, fiduciary duty and, and all of that. However, um, it creates a sort of a defensive mentality where a lot of management really feel that victory is just getting out of the board meeting with their proposal or their plans unscathed. Mm -hmm. And so it's very much like this is what we want to do, and then management focuses on defending against the board's questions. Now, when you think of the caliber of people that serve on boards, these are very smart, accomplished, sophisticated people. the shift that I've really noticed over the last, I would say, four or five years that boards really want to make, and a lot of management would like to make as well, is to what I call collaborative oversight. So it's a shift from reporting out to really having much more engaged dialogue between management and the board, less of a defensive thing. Certainly the board is overseeing and 
questioning all those assumptions and challenging. That's their oversight part. But there's a collaborative part of that, too, where you're really tapping into the expertise of the board and leveraging that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the next shift. And interestingly, with the COVID, um, I actually think it's uh, driven boards a little bit more that way. Um, So it's interesting, but that's where I think we're going over the next five years. Yeah, to a more collaborative environment. I I think that sounds right. Um, And it sounds more productive than the reporting out type dynamic. It is, but there's certain prerequisites that you need in order for that to work. Uh, For example, you you need to have um, really a great um, composition of the board because if you – Collaborative oversight only works when the board has enough relevant experience to the issues that management is dealing with where they can really make a meaningful and valuable contribution. So that's very important. And even boards that have wanted to shift to collaborative oversight very often find they need to recruit two or even more directors in order to really get that composition of the board to where they want it to be. Secondly, you need a leader who's a very good meeting facilitator. When you are um, just doing a reporting out meeting, you can get by as the board chair almost being a traffic director, you know, Um, maybe Mark first and then share all over here, you know. Mm -hmm. When you're doing collaborative oversight, you need a chair who really is a good meeting facilitator. They keep the thing on track. They avoid getting down in the weeds with the micromanagement. They really will intervene you know, where they need to, to make sure this is a productive conversation. Not all board chairs have those skills. So I think that's important. Another issue, too, is that management themselves need to understand, particularly the CEO, the difference uh, between a collaborative relationship where they're sometimes afraid of losing control to the board, you know, and then you'll have other CEOs that almost cede control to the board. So you have to have a CEO that really understands the dynamics of that and, and where to draw that line so that it's a productive and collaborative board management relationship. And again, not all CEOs have those skills either. Yeah. I can tell you that going from standing up a public company in a completely virtual environment to starting to have in-person meetings, being in the room, being able to read body language, facial expression, tone, much better than you can on a screen is a huge help. Yes, it, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. But again, if you get into that collaborative discussion, you know, it's much more of a two-way dialogue. And so you really need someone whose head is up through the meeting and who's very good at facilitating the meeting. And not all chairs have those skills quite candidly. So do you see the same type of behavior in U.S. boards as well as in other countries, or are there major differences? I don't see major differences, if you want to know the truth. Um, I mean, there are differences. For example, I've done a lot of work in Southeast Asia, and um, one of the major differences there is that a lot of their big pension funds control a lot of their large companies, and so they tend to place people on the boards to represent them, and that impacts um, both the dynamics and the composition of the board. So, I mean, that's one notable difference I've found working there, Um, but... Generally, I don't think there's much difference. And what's really interesting, when I wrote Becoming a Boardroom Star, uh, when I finished the manuscript, I sent uh, a copy of it to a client of mine in Israel, a client in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and someone I've worked with for a long time in Medellin, Colombia. 
and all of them came back and said that the issues that were talked about in there and the examples that they absolutely resonated to them. Hmm. And so it was really interesting because what it reinforced to me was that, you know, the book was um, speaking to people globally that are on boards. Yeah, that's great. I think that we also were curious if there's been anything that has, I imagine there has, uh, um, anything that surprised you in the governance field as you've progressed through all of these different experiences. I think one of the biggest surprises for me has been how boards completely underutilize their annual board evaluation. Um, you know, as I, I shared with you, I, I got asked to do my first board evaluation, director evaluation back in 1996. And, you know, we used the old circle one to five write in type of thing. And let's not forget in 1996, people were still listening to music on the Sony disc mix. Okay. <laughs> it was a while ago. Yes. <laughs> so things have changed a lot since 1996. And guess what? So have board evaluations. Board evaluations have changed. And it's shocking to me how antiquated um, many board evaluation processes are, um, you know, and you've got all these sophisticated, smart people on the board, and rather than really leveraging their expertise and getting their insights, um, as you might do with a different format, um, you know, they're still using this 1996 approach, which is really um, leaving a lot to be desired. And board members themselves will criticize the process and say, oh, this is nothing but a box-ticking exercise, and yet they continue to go through it year after year, and mm. that has surprised me. What I think, however, and why I wrote the book about board and director evaluations that just came out in August was because I think an interesting development has occurred with um, COVID. Directors all around the world suddenly became conversant in video conferencing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think that's an opportunity to allow boards to really seamlessly move from that survey structure to an interview format that often yields far more uh, constructive, uh, useful feedback. It's more engaging for people, and it's really going to sort of take the board evaluation process up. So I think it's really timely to look at certainly that as a, a starting point and then some other innovations that have um, been developed over the last decade as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, one thing that I have been enjoying when I'm reading Becoming a Boardroom Star is that I feel like I kind of get an inside glimpse into how the directors are responding to some of the board evaluations. And that's really fascinating as somebody who advises boards. Well, you know, board evaluations, when you do them in this way, and, you know, part of it has to do with your mindset. If you think of it as kind of a compliance vehicle and a report card, then, um, you know, oh, there was nothing here, that's fine. But if you think of it as sort of a team-building exercise mm -hmm. for the board and something that's really to foster really good discussion about important issues in the board, then you get into a lot of really impactful changes and dialogue, and it really does build the board as a team. And so it's, a, it's almost a different experience. Yeah, and it's a, a good board evaluation is a way to take the board to the next level. So kudos to you for facilitating that. You don't have to even do that type of board evaluation, comprehensive one with interviews every year if you don't want to. I mean, um, every three years tends to be what a lot of my clients do. And if you even look at Britain, their mandate, which is to have board evaluations externally facilitated, it's for every three years. 
because if you have this kind of really robust and good uh, dialogue with the board and a good action plan with some really interesting things you decide to address, anything from how the board works with management on strategy to um, you know the pre-reading materials to um, how they're going to tackle CEO succession planning or risk issues or whatever it is, those things are often not overnight changes. Right. And, you know, you want to give yourself some time to step up and, and, you know, implement those. And so you don't need to repeat that process every year. Yeah, good point. And what I was going to say about when you mentioned team building exercise, you know, it, it's completely toned by the board chair and the chair of the nominee and governance committee in supporting you know, the, the deeper dive evaluation. Yeah, I couldn't really agree helps. more. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. In fact, in, in the book, I talk about, you know, there's two different types of board leaders. There's champions. And champions are people who really want their board to be outstanding. That's what they want. They want management to come out of board meetings and say, wow, that was a great meeting. Like, mm-hmm. they brought up some points we hadn't really thought about. That was amazing. Or... You know, they put us through our paces, but I can go to Wall Street now, and there is nothing an analyst is going to ask me that didn't just come up, and it gives me a lot of confidence. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the kind of stuff you want coming out of the boardroom, and that's what a champion wants to create. But on the other hand, you sometimes have a different kind of board leader, which I call a preservationist, mm-hmm. <laughs> and their their main goal in life is to stay on the board. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, and they're, they're not terribly interested in excellence. In yeah. fact, mediocrity is is actually better. Don't rock the boat. Because it's not threatening. Yeah. Um, they're often not a very effective leader. They can be very well-liked, though. Um, you know, they, they ingratiate themselves to um, other directors because they, you know, longevity is, is their objective, to stay on the board and to stay as chair as soon as possible. And if you have a... Um, a board leader, either non-gov chair or a board chair, who tends to be more of a preservationist, they are not going to be uh, comfortable with more innovative approaches. Interestingly, uh, you don't need all your board leaders to be um, champions. In fact, if you had a non-gov chair that was a champion, they will very often bring in a more robust board evaluation process and it'll work wonders. Mm. So you don't have to have them all, but you need at least the board chair, the chair of non-gov, one one of those two, and perhaps even the CEO. I've seen CEOs, particularly chair CEOs, uh, bring in new approaches that have really revitalized the board. Hmm. That's encouraging. Uh, So you used the COVID-19 lockdowns over the past couple of years to create more thought leadership about boards. Tell us about what that's looked like, what you like most about it, and what type of skills and knowledge you're imparting to the next generation. Well, um, I think that's a, a lofty objective. I, I won't. I won't say that I'll never. Uh, I'll necessarily impart all these knowledge to the next generation. But um, I, I work in with boards kind of day in and day out. Um, have done for 25 years, and um, there's a lot of innovation in the areas I work, particularly in board evaluation, in you know the relationship between the board and management, things like that. And I think it's important for some of those innovations to be understood more broadly. Uh, For example, something like Board 2.0 is a wonderful, probably the best board succession planning tool I've ever found. The new Director 360 is something that I worked with the board of a Fortune 100 company on. Um, I think it's something every board should look at potentially 
as the capstone of their director orientation program. And so my view was, gee, there's been some really interesting um, innovations. And what's particularly interesting about them is there's nothing academic about them. These actually came out of work with boards in the S&P 1500. And I think other boards could benefit from learning about them. So that was really my motivation for um, two of the books that I wrote. Uh, one is the board and director evaluation book, and then the second is a book that will be coming out uh, probably in November. It's called New CEOs and Boards, How to Build a Great Board Relationship and a Great Board. Hmm. Becoming a boardroom star um, has a little different origin. Basically, I started getting calls from friends who um, were being recruited to boards, many of whom were being recruited in response to diversity and inclusion objectives, okay? So um, women, Asian-American friends, African-American friends, and they called and they said sort of the same thing, which is, I'm thrilled to be recruited to this board, and I want to be really, really good. I want to understand what are some of the pitfalls that I need to be aware of, and what are some of the things I can do, practically do, that will make me a really good director. Hmm. And I started having these conversations and went for a walk actually one day in Central Park, and I thought, you know, I've interviewed thousands of directors in um, board evaluations and director evaluations about what, you know, makes their all-star directors so um, laudable and what's impressed them so much and why these people are particularly well Um, well-considered and and well-respected. And on the flip side, what have been some of the things that have detracted from their view of other directors? And I thought about that, and um, before I knew it, that's where Becoming a Boardroom Star came from. Hmm. As someone who's worked in the governance field for the past 20 years, it really resonated with me when you said in your book, Becoming a Boardroom Star, that governance is a team sport. Uh, It's so true and so very... Uh, little understood, but what do you think makes for a successful governance team? I think three things, you know, and and maybe even before I discuss those three things, um, Courtney, let me sort of say that for many executives, you know, they're used to making a decision and that decision gets implemented. And when you're on a board, you're part of a team. You know, you're one voice of maybe eight or seven or ten, okay? And power in the board comes down to influence, hmm. your ability yes. to influence. And that's a very different operating dynamic than many CEOs and other senior executives are used to. So it's just understanding that team dynamic um, is, is one piece. And, you know, we can also talk about the challenge of the uh, managing that line between governance and management, which is another challenge when you move from the executive suite to the boardroom. When we talk about three things that really make for a great uh, team, governance team, um, I would say the first is leadership. You know, we talked earlier about champions and preservationists. You know, when you think about boards, they're made up of leaders. And these are all people that were a leader in some way. They either, you know, ran a company, they were a senior person in who knows, a consulting firm, an auditing firm, or they had a leadership role. And for you to be the leader of the board, um, you know, 
you need to operate in a way that genuinely earns the respect of the people you're leading and um, be effective in doing that, which includes understanding how to draw out the best in your team Mm -hmm. and where there may be gaps in your team. And to be willing to step up to director performance issues, which I think is the single biggest um, corporate governance problem, uh, certainly in the United States today, and I would say around the world. Hmm. Um, you know, when we look at the PwC numbers of, you know, 700 directors two years in a row, half of them have said there's someone on our board that needs to be replaced, and a quarter of them have said two or more need to go. Yeah. And then when they ask them, about board leadership, the lowest score that board leaders get is on managing director performance. So, you know, that really impacts the credibility of the leader. So I would say leadership is number one. The second is dynamics. You know, do you, are you creating a board working environment that brings out the best in people? You know, are different perspectives valued or are they kind of suppressed? Um, do people say what they feel in the room or in the hall afterwards? Are they genuinely um, looking at the best interests of the company, or do some of them have sort of self-interested things, you know, that are always coming into play, or pet issues that are always coming into play? And so you want to create a somewhat vibrant, energized environment, because that's where most teams do their best work, you know, as sort of checked out you know, place where it's kind of stale, or where it's actually a bit um, you know, antagonistic or even hostile, people aren't going to be doing their best work in there as a team. And then lastly is the players themselves. You know, you want to make sure that you've got a really top-notch group of board members around your table with relevant skills that reflect the um, business of the company, the strategic direction of the company, um, good diversity, um, reflect also ownership in terms of if there are uh, say it's a family control company or things like that. So those three factors, I'd say leadership, dynamics, and the players themselves. That's great. Good advice. So our last question is one that we ask every guest on our podcast, and that, okay. <laughs> that is, what do you think women in the corporate governance field can add to the current conversation on the societal role of companies? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting um, just to go back to, I'm not sure it's so much the societal role, but I think it's an important contribution of, of women. Just to go back to that performance management issue, because I think this is a really um, major uh, drawback right now in many boards because they're not stepping up to performance management. I find a lot of women, and I can't say this universally, but I find that women tend to be a little less tolerant of performance management issues than some of their male counterparts, Mm. okay? And I think that it may be because, I've thought about this, but I think it may be because women of sort of a certain age, those of us who are, you know, over 50 and, you know, perhaps even beyond that, um, came into um, the corporate world where women were only just sort of advancing um, to senior roles and I think had to work very, very hard for those opportunities, perhaps even harder than some male colleagues. And because of that, I think, you know, some of those women are a little less tolerant of underperformance. And mm-hmm. I've certainly, female board chairs that I've worked with, um, not all, but many, have had a tendency to really step up 
and, um, you know, have the courage to diplomatically but very effectively address a performance management problem. That's fascinating. We haven't gotten that response yet. <laughs> no, we haven't. But I could see... I could see that playing out. That's very interesting. I can't say that's universally true, and I can't say that I don't know uh, really terrific male lead directors and chairs who haven't done it as well. Of course they have, but I have seen women step up to it more readily than I've seen men do. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and of course this question isn't meant to be uh, a referendum on women or men, and we understand that there are uh, variations and not everybody is alike, but, um, but we get interesting responses to this question in terms of um, overall dispositions and experiences that women have had and how they handle things and how that plays out in the boardroom. Well, I, I think for you know a lot of women who are in the boardroom now, they have had more challenges in their career because women were only new in senior roles during their era. And I think because of that, um, you know, they, they really had to work hard. Mm -hmm. And so they don't tend to tolerate um, underperformance quite as much, perhaps. <laughs> Interesting know. viewpoint, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Deb, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Women Governance Trailblazers. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Please subscribe on whatever platform you use for podcasts. We would love if you would rate us while you're there.